a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explore the topic of where we should shop and what produce we should eat. Our first guest was Chris Russell, agricultural scientist, businessman, and host of AgriMinders on Podcast One. We were then joined by Davey Ora, a first-generation farmer and founder of Raw Eatables. His farm on the outskirts of Melbourne was founded to provide the awareness of growing nutrient-rich food sustainably. Now, Chris Russell has spent over 30 years working in engineering and agricultural projects globally, from helping nomadic herders in Mongolia through to automating feed grains and crops, through to improving water systems. Chris has seen it all. He's the former national president and ethics chair of the Australian Institute of Agricultural Science. So it would be fair to say, on the subject of food production, his experience is vast. Um, I thought I'd lead out by asking you a question that is probably on the minds of every mother and supermarket shopper. Is our produce safe? Oh, that's an easy question, yes. <laughs> Next question. Could we dive down into that? Because many of us, I guess, have night sweats about whether or not we should be buying organic produce given given what gets out there in the media about pesticides, hormones in our meat, permeating the milk and so on. Can you unpack a bit about why we should trust, say, the fruit and veg section? So that's a that's a, an interesting point. I think the thing you have to bear in mind is that we're to the point of uh, fanaticism. Um, the APVMA will not let you use any product in Australia without a full set of data, which you have to redo in many cases, even though it might have been done overseas, in terms of the safety of that chemical in conjunction with a crop. You know, they they require residual studies. They require any studies that have been done overseas. Some studies have to be redone in Australia. So we have this reputation, which I think everyone in agriculture guards very closely, of being with New Zealand, probably the safe food mecca in the world. And and I think that's a reputation we tried to hold on to. Now, um, you, what you have to remember is quite often you buy food which is organic where they don't use any of these pesticides and they they work on what they call the precautionary principle. So in other words, what they're saying is, well, look, just in case in the future we find it's not safe, we'll leave them all out now. Um, and and that's, a, that's a view that you can take. But it doesn't change my view that um, based on the knowledge and the data and very comprehensive studies, it's not possible to use something that's going to cause a food safety issue on crops in Australia um, and and release that food into the market because our reputation for that is way too strong for us to uh, to actually take that risk. The upside, of course, of being able to use um, these various technologies, be they chemicals or be they GM or whatever, is our efficiency and the fact that we can actually make it safer for farm workers to operate. 
Um, I'll give you an example of that with GM where for years we've used a very dangerous chemical called endosulfan for keeping uh, weevils out of uh, cotton crops when they've been growing. Uh, and in fact, it was really the finish of the crop up in the Kununurra area in uh, Northern Territory because there was so, so much insect infestation, they just had to almost continuously spray. Um, and largely the use of that organophosphate chemical, which the chemical itself is dangerous, but of course it doesn't really impose any danger on the cotton itself for wearing point of view, but it was a dangerous chemical to use. And by using a genetically modified cotton, which took the gene out of a particular bacteria, which produced a protein that was toxic to those weevils and splicing that into the cotton plant so that the leaf actually had that protein and therefore the weevils died the moment they ate that leaf. And that's been able to all but eliminate the use of that organophosphate chemical from crops and made that whole industry so much safer without any effect at all on the consumer Uh, but it's made it a lot safer industry from the point of view of the producer. I think there was one big giant acronym you dropped in there, which is the APVMA, that I'd ask you to clarify because I don't think any of the listeners might know that one. Right. Well, (laughs) that's the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicine Authority. And they are really the uh, threshold through which you have to pass anything that you sell. Now, unlike a lot of countries... Um, where that's purely based on safety. This is also based on claims made. So if if you want to sell a new chemical that you've discovered that does some amazing thing to the crop, you have to prove the advantage to the producer in using that as well as proving that it's safe. Now, a lot of countries, America, for example, the main emphasis on proving that it's safe and it's buyer beware in terms of whether it does any good or not. Um, but that's not the case in Australia. And, and having dealt with them and, and uh, I've actually worked with them on where we did a lot of work on developing an alternative method of mulesing sheep, uh, which is something they're trying to remove from the sheep industry in Australia. And having worked with them and know the stringency with which they operate. And in that case, we were using a chemical that actually is routinely used in mouthwash and toothpaste as a surfactant. So it was already proven and known to be safe uh, and used almost ubiquitously in our daily lives. Yet in order for us to get approval to inject that into the skin of sheep in order to get the same effect as uh, what Mulesing did, um, we had to go through nearly four years of trials, repeat trials, uh, papers and, and peer review by various experts before that was able to be registered. But for those of us who I guess have been, you know, weighing up whether or not we should buy, you know, from alternative or farm pro- Farm farmers markets or things like that. Does what we buy in those farmers markets or you know organic food stores have to go through the AVPMA, APVMA accreditation as well, or does that sit outside? Now the APVMA is all about the the weedicides, the pesticides, and the veterinary medicines that you might use. It's not about the crop. Okay, but when it comes down to say my iceberg lettuce that I pull out of Coles or Woolies. Is there an advantage to, say, buying organic or biodynamic produce? So when you buy, you've got to remember there's, there's two. The use of uh, the word organic is generic, but certified organic belongs to the Australian Organic Company, which is a company in, in Queensland who actually look at the way you produce your crop 
Uh, and then they also look at all the inputs you use. They don't allow any inputs from anything that's been basically man-made. It always all had to come from naturally produced products. Uh, they don't allow GM. And these days they're looking even at fair trade issues in terms of, you know, are the workers paid properly and so on and so forth. Uh, certainly also from an animal welfare film point of view, they look at uh, also the conditions of the animals when they're producing the crop. So that's if you buy certified organic. Organic implies that the product is produced without the, the help of man-made inputs, I guess, uh, and that it's a naturally produced thing. It might be something, in fact, you even went out and dug in the jungle somewhere or you found, you know, yam roots under a plant. Um, I guess the issue that I would say to you is that because something is produced, you know, for example, using GM or something is just in nature, turns up with it, doesn't make the risk of that being a safe food any more or less. You have to test that food in any case to make sure it's a safe food. There are many foods that just appear in nature which are inherently dangerous. Like what? Um, uh, well, for example, deadly nightshade. Uh, if you cross deadly nightshade with tomatoes, then you'd produce a tomato that was poisonous. Um, there are potatoes that occur in nature which are poisonous. Um, so you, when, if I went into the jungles of... Burma or somewhere and found a new fruit or, or a root crop that had never been eaten before and I wanted to sell it in Australia, I couldn't just turn up and put it in the market. I'd have to actually put it through a food safety testing program, which is monitored by a, food, uh, a joint organisation of Australia and New Zealand, which goes under the acronym of FSANTS, which I think stands for Food Safety Australia New Zealand. New Zealand. Uh, and so you have to do that testing to make sure that it is what it is and it is safe. The comment I would make, though, is that if that is that same fruit is produced from genetic engineering in some way, which is a little bit like putting your hand in the lotto drum and lifting the six numbers out rather than hoping they'll drip out of the bottom. That's really the main difference between the two, and I'll give you some more examples of that later. But if you actually produce it genetic from genetic engineering, then there is an extra hurdle you have to go through, which is the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator. And generally, they do not let genetically modified foods or seeds into the country. It's very difficult at to all. get them in. Well, it, yes, it's very difficult. Some states at all, like Western Australia, for example, Tasmania, although I understand they're reviewing that at the moment, other states with huge amount of testing uh, and so on, regardless of the fact that you could actually go off uh, with Mendelian genetics, which is where you just put them out in the paddock and let yeah. the pollen flow and everything. You could go and do it that way, get end up with exactly the same end result and, and that wouldn't have to go through that hurdle. So there's just this mistrust, I think, in some of our regulations of anything that uh, humankind has actually made itself rather than it just coming out of nature. So... I mean, in terms of the practical take home, if we're looking at punitive strawberries A, that's you know organic versus punitive strawberries B, which is mainstream, you, is what you're saying that there's potentially no difference in the nutritional or health benefit? Well, uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a nutritionist, but I, the nutritionists I have spoken to and have reviewed the literature, and there's been a number of literature reviews that have been done about that. Um, the latest guy I spoke to on my podcast series is a guy called Dr. Tim Crow, who's a nutritionist, and he says that he can find no evidence in any of the data that there's any consistent difference nutritionally between organically produced uh, product and, and a conventionally produced product. None. 
No, well, the only thing that's been ever found is that there was a study in Europe that was done some time ago which found uh, higher um, uh, levels of oxidising agents in organically produced food um, and therefore they considered that, the, that therefore there might be some advantage if those agents uh, help with heart disease or whatever. Um, but that's in terms of your normal minerals for survival, the nutritional type needs, they couldn't find, there's no difference being reported at all. So I, I sense that the big thing people are seeing with organics is this feel-good scenario. So people like to think that their food was produced with good animal welfare, that it just came out of nature. They have this sort of fear of some, anything produced by from our own intelligence. I think we've mistrusted science in somewhere along the line there. Um, and so they know that's not the case. They know there's been no weedicides used. So whether that's an advantage or not, they just prefer them not to be used. So providing they're prepared to pay for that, then, uh, you know, that's fine. That's, that's people should always have that choice. And I think we should all believe in transparency so that if we are or aren't complying with any of those things, we leave it to the consumer to decide whether that's important to them or not. But in terms of actual scientific benefit, I think pretty marginal. And the reason people go into organic food is that it's so profitable compared with conventional food because they get so much more for it. But they're often big hits production-wise. Around about 20% would probably be a good figure on most of the uh, papers that have been done. What do you Uh, mean? What do you mean production hits? Because they're not, they don't have available to them some of the technologies uh, that from, come from refined products, like, for example, urea. Now, urea, of course, is a natural substance. We all produce it every day. But um, the urea you buy to use on the farm is refined out of fossil fuels generally. So, so therefore, um, that, that's not an allowed input for an organic farm. Um, they claim that's, although the end formula and chemistry of it is the same, they claim that the use of a urea can maybe pollute waterways or, you know, you get runoff from that. There's other reasons why they're, they're not comfortable with using that. So, um, you don't, but you take a big hit if you've got to do everything just from composted manure. Many of the weedicides that are not allowed to be used means that you have all this competition from other plants when you're growing your organic plants and therefore you take a production hit. Got it. So, so for those reasons, although it's it's hard to generalise, and I, as I say, I'm not a I'm not an organic agronomist to give you the uh, detailed advice. But the general run of the information is that there's probably a twenty percent hit in production. So, so long as you're getting thirty percent more money for the product that you're producing, then you know you're ten percent ahead. So you're sort of saying there's no real, as far as you know, there's absolutely no evidence for health benefit in terms of all the well-known micronutrients contained in produce. Secondly, there's a lot of inefficiency in the production because they don't have access to certain things. But beyond that, are there situations where you think supermarket produce with its cold chain or whatever might be superior to organic food? Well, just let me correct you on one thing. I'm not saying there's absolutely no evidence that there's any benefit. In some people's minds, the benefits I've been talking about in animal welfare and environmental issues and so on is a key factor, even free trade, you know, the fact that workers are being paid properly that are producing it. So those sort of benefits are what people, I think, 
can put a tangible figure on because they can be sure that weedicides haven't been used. They can be sure that well, animal welfare issues are considered. There's no GM uh, and that the free trade thing has been thought about. So if that's what's important, then that, that's a benefit and that then they're happy to pay the extra money for it. But I think any data that indicates a nutritional health benefit from eating it, I think is very limited. So now you're talking about supermarkets. So I mean, supermarkets, of course, in Australia are an oligopoly, so therefore they have, a, they have basically control over what we have and they have a huge control in advertising. Mm. Um, and although they try to be transparent in what they're offering, particularly in they thinks that the things that they think their customers want to know about, like, for example, cage-free eggs or something like that, I must say I, I shudder sometimes at some of the potential manipulation that can occur when you know when you do that. The ex- two examples I can give you is hormone-free chickens. Yeah. There have been no hormones used in chicken feed in Australia by law since 1955. Really? So so they've just manufactured that advantage. It's not an untrue statement, of course it's true, but but you know it's a bit like me saying, you know, red-headed redheads. You know, oh I mean, God. it's, you, you know, go. all chickens are hormone-free. Since 1955, so, all this time I've been picking the hormone-free, walking around in the paddock chicken. Yeah, well, I mean, hormones were stopped, used in 1955 after there was a scare in Germany when young German boys started developing breast tissue. Oh. So they, it's basically been <laughs> not used since that time in Goodness. chickens. Well, that's a really good reason to stop. But, I mean, there is suggestion, is it? Is, are these hormones used around the world? Because I've been told, just from an epidemiology point of view, that the early puberty in women, which is a phenomenon we see, is partly due to hormones in the food chain. Well, they're not, they're not in chickens. Okay, right. They're not, so, they could be somewhere, so but they're not in chickens. They're, they're not in chickens. And another example I'll give you is we had a big push and there are still some milk on the shelves that's called permeate-free milk. Yeah, now, now the logic by that was that if perme- permeate is what's left after you've taken the cream out of milk, so it's like the whey, if you like. So if you tip that into a river, just, you know, as a, uh, as a waste product, then of course it's a pollutant and you'll get algal growth because the algae will grow on eating that the whey and then they'll starve the oxygen out of the river and you'll get, you know, B, the BOD demand, biological oxygen demand is high, and so therefore it is a pollutant. But does that mean it's toxic when you leave it in milk? Absolutely not. So uh, permeate-free milk is a bit like saying milk-free milk um, because it is only a part of milk that's put back in because we want to buy milk, increasing demand for people who want to have milk you know, with 1% fat or 3% or yeah. no fat or whatever. So there's two ways you can do that. You either take the fat in or you dilute it with more whey or permeate, if you like. But why, why, why do we... So we started to think that that was bad because in some instances it was tipped into the river. Yeah, because... No, well, I think the story that was put out there to try and... Uh, in my view, mislead the public in thinking that permeate was a bad thing was this idea that because it was a pollutant, therefore it was toxic. Um, and uh, toxic as in uh, if you put it in a river, it starves the oxygen and therefore when the oxygen comes out of the river, it kills the fish. Yes, it's toxic to fish in that scenario, but so is sugar. So is anything you put in there which provides carbon and, and sugars to feeding algae. 
Got so it. So it's it's a nonsense to say that if you leave it out of milk, that somehow makes the milk better. That's a marketing tool. Looping back to the hormones, because I think people are very interested in this, are you aware that we have hormones in other meat? Um, hormones implants have been used, in, well, stimulation of hormone implants has been used in cattle for many years. Not in all cattle, but in fact only in a small amount of cattle, mainly mean, feedlot cattle. Can you explain that? What, is it, what do you mean by stimulating implants or implant stimulating hormones? Okay, so they call them HGPs or hormonal growth promotants. And it's a small pellet which is placed in the ear of male cattle generally. You can, there are ones for females as well, but generally it's male cattle because most of our high-quality meat comes from castrated male cattle, which are called steers. So a bull, take you castrated, so Why do you castrate them? So if you leave, if it's the same as with a pig, um, you get um, a much more strongly flavoured meat, and they're also a lot harder to manage in, in a, a feeding situation or, in fact, even in an abattoir when they're, when they're entire, as they call it. So when they've still got their testicles and they're entire, they're aggressive, um, you know, they're, they're high and they're much bigger and much stronger and the meat is also uh, can be tainted. So therefore, right. the, for, for most meat cattle, you, you do get some bull meat on the market, but most cattle, when you buy beef, comes from castrated um, male animals. When they're not castrated, they're called bulls, and when they are castrated, they're called steers. Got it. Uh, a little okay. bit like with a horse. A horse is a stallion if it's not castrated and a gilding if it is castrated. And again, they do it in horses so that the animal quietens down and, and sort of um, becomes a more neutral sort of animal rather than being hard to manage every time it sees a good-looking lady walking past, a bit like Got my 18-year-old son. Got it. <laughs> well, I'll take, I'll, I'll take your word for that. So you're saying that we, in typical beef production, mainstream beef production, they're castrated and then they have one of these pellets put in their ear. Some of them do, yes. I mean, most grass-fed cattle in Australia, they don't do that and they, because, you know, the limitation on their weight gain is going to be because of the quality of food they're eating. But if you're really force-feeding that animal to put on weight very quickly, and remember that the reason we have grain-fed animals in Australia is that a lot of our markets in Asia won't buy grass-fed animals because they don't want the flavour of a grass-fed animal. They're not used to it. The Americans have more or less um, steered them away from that for ages. So they'll only right. buy cattle which have been fed predominantly on grain for the last 100 days before they're slaughtered. So those animals, that's expensive feed to put in. You want to maximise the feed conversion from those animals because um, instead of costing you, you know, uh, six cents um, a kilo uh, in, in grain, you know, in feed, you might be spending, you know, 30 cents or 40 cents or 70 cents even. So, you know, it's it's expensive feed and therefore what you want to do is um, make sure you maximise that. So you put these little pellets in their ear and that pellet stimulates the production of some female hormones, which then um, gives the meat more fat and about 21% better feed conversion. In other words, the amount of feed it takes to put on a kilo of weight is reduced by about 21% on average, according to the data. Mm, that explains now, a lot, what, doesn't it? <laughs> so, well, so, but what the, in, so Coles have been advertising HGP free meat um, yep. and they've been selling that as a feature. But they don't, for example, ban heifer meat. And heifer meat, of course, a heifer is a female, a bovine, right. and they have naturally occurring oestrogen. 
and there's far more estrogen in heifer meat than there is in implanted steer meat. So the notion, even if there was some notion that estrogen in there was bad for you or, or sex or extra sex hormone was bad for you, uh, if that was the case, we shouldn't eat any heifer meat. Um, so, but you know, we, again, know there's no what, logic to that. Yeah. Do we know what gender our meat is? Is there a way to make no, sure we're getting... We, generally, we don't know that. But I would say the meat you buy, if you buy high-quality meat, you know, like sort of scotch fillet and ribeye and T-bone and so on, most of that meat, if you're paying good money for it, you can be pretty sure is from a castrated male, a steer. Got it. Well, I guess, I mean, this is a, an interesting sort of segue to the next hot question, which I know many people are curious about, which is the whole genetically modified food issue. People are, are I think, rightly or wrongly, very concerned about whether or not GMO, despite what we've already talked about, is on the horizon or a threat. Yes. So and I, can I prefix this by saying that I'm an absolute believer in, in our society of transparency and information. So if people want to only buy steers that have white spots in the middle of their head uh, and three legs and not four, then they should, you know, that they ha- they're entitled to buy that. That's a ridiculous example. But <laughs> if they only want to buy GM um, uh, free produce then, of course, I absolutely am happy with with that being declared and people have the right to know that. What I guess I've tried to do on my podcast series, AgriMinders, and what we're doing here is just to make sure that when you're making that decision that you're not, you know, you're not basing it on a whole lot of myth that that actually has no basis, in fact. Um, What's an example of a myth that people have that you are constantly having to unwind? The first myth is the fact that because it's GM, it's automatically bad. You know, that, that's not true. The chance of it being unsafe or in some way dangerous food or not as good as the naturally Mendelian bread food, um, just because it's been done by splicing genes in and out, is, uh, is scientifically a nonsense. There's no less or more risk of that. Um, and if the and the testing that needs to be done is identical, whether you find it in the jungle of somewhere or whether you do it yourself by splicing. So, I mean, what, where do we draw the line? Are there ever instances in your mind where GM is, you know, out and out bad? Well, oh, well, you can ge- genetically. Uh, there's been, I think, potatoes that were produced, and they were found to be completely poisonous. Um, but that could have happened by nature or from GM. My point is the risk is the same and you need to test every food you produced regardless of how you produced it genetically before you put it on the market. But but what about like our, our kind of all-natural biodynamic farmer? Would that not be the gold standard, someone that's using ancient regenerative farming techniques to provide food that's sustainable for the land? Is that not well, the top well, of the tree? My question is why would ancient biodynamic farmer be any more likely to be sustainable than a scientist or a farmer today taking benefit of all our knowledge and, and our ability to use that knowledge to be more efficient? Um, you know, I, I think ancient biodynamic farmers more or less did it almost by discovery and by chance, whereas what we've done in the last 50 or 100 years is use our intelligence as a species to to find ways of being able to be more efficient and produce more food. We're not always right, but nearly neither's nature. No, a lot of mutations that you get naturally in nature are complete failures. 
Um, so, so whether it's done by mutation and by chance in nature or whether it's done by our intelligence, I would argue both of them have risk and we should test both of them. But I, I don't automatically assume, although I'm a fantastic fan of biomimicry, particularly when we're trying to short-circuit a discovery process and copy things that yeah. have been developed by evolution, absolutely. But, um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use our ability to understand nature to, uh, if you like, short-circuit a process that otherwise might take another million years. I wanted to thank you for taking us through an incredibly comprehensive journey through a lot of the hot topics in produce, supermarkets. Um, you've mentioned your podcast. People can tune in. Uh, but for today, thank you so much for bringing your expertise and time to unpack and open up this fascinating topic. No worries, mate. What struck me about Chris's experience was his optimism around the Australian food system, also the pragmatism with which he responded on issues of genetic modification, hormonal manipulation and mass production. He genuinely has no concern. And it left me questioning, is this anxiety about GMO a beat-up? Are we overpaying for biodynamic and organic produce? Is all this just a way for bourgeois people to feel less guilty about consumption? And is organic and biodynamic produce kind of demonstrating the placebo effect of nutrition. Let's hear from Davey Aura. Davey is seriously passionate about doing the right thing when it comes to food. Also, about inspiring people back to eating how nature intended. Along with his partner and team, Dave undertakes a daily practice of farming by hand. He believes this is what sustainable quality crops demand. It's an inspiring undertaking, and having sampled his produce, I can confirm it also delivers a delicious result. Dave, welcome. Take me back to working for Optus. You're in corporate. You're selling stuff. What happened? Yeah, good question. I I would have to say I overworked and being so into many different things, those things ended up, my passions ended up driving me towards leaving that industry altogether, but then establishing a path in what I found was really my calling. And, and one of those things was the dancing. The dancing. Hang on a minute. What do you mean the dancing? Good question. <laughs> so you're, a te- you're working for Optus? So I'm working for Oct- uh, Optus. A friend of mine invites me out to his 40th birthday party. It was at the Grand Hyatt, the Park Hyatt, sorry, in the city. It was a, an event that was salsa-based. So they had a salsa band. There's people just dancing everywhere. I walked in there and I knew I'd found something special. I just uh, found myself loving the, the music and, and the dance. I was brought up around this type of music, but never actually realized there was a, a dance style to it. And that was when I discovered salsa dancing uh, and that there were different styles of dancing from Cuban, LA, New York, and there's all these different styles. And I just had to learn it. I just was determined. So I took out my path of training dance. I started to go to social nights, um, do classes, ended up teaching, ended up competing, ended up traveling Australia and then overseas coming back to Australia, competing, ranking highest in Victoria at the time and sixth in Australia. So it was a whole journey that it occurred from the dancing. You went deep in dance. It, I did, I did. And then from there, that gave me the time, and this is where it all links, to get into other passions such as growing and returning back to just for the fun of it, um, to grow my own food because I thought as a human I need to know how to grow food. 
um, and that was part of my journey of eating good food. I wanted to know how it grow, how it grew, and how how do you, I guess, produce food that tastes amazing, and you do it easily on the side. But hang on a minute, what? You're running a dance school at this point, I understand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, what do you do? You just you go to Bunnings and buy a pot plant. <laughs> or like, what happened? I decided one day that I wanted to grow food, and so I did a course in organic no dig gardening, and that was with Mac Daniels from Peace Farm. That was great. From there, I realised there's a lot more to the picture than a little course could show you. So I then studied on my own, I took it in my own hands and I started to read old agricultural books, new ones. Um, I looked into biodynamics and I actually was fortunate enough to borrow land off a friend who had a a biodynamic master gardener working there from Germany uh, and who's also a teacher here in in Melbourne Um, and was able to teach me as we would work together side by side on days and they would talk to me about biodynamics and it would make it more accessible and practical to understand because biodynamics on its own has a lot of uh, angles to it. But like what is biodynamics for Great the question. hunter? Yeah, yeah. Well, biodynamics, it's a, it's a way of thinking and understanding through the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. Dr. Rudolf Steiner in 1924 gave uh, about eight series lectures. Uh, Rudolf Steiner was quite a genius and it was quite connected to the ether, as you can say, where the, let's say where the knowledge comes from. And not many people have that ability, whereas he was able to foresee what the agricultural industry, as well as many other industries, was needing at the time to heal, to, to improve. Um, and that was to improve the soil, the water, and the humans, the food that, that they would produce. He was somehow, somehow able to see methods and give farmers practical methods to improve their fertility in their soil and their land. And that's what they did. So it's a thinking of understanding a farm as an individual, just as a human is, a farm is, and understanding the, f- the cosmic forces that interplay every moment. And it, and it can sound really far out there, but on a simple yeah, level, yeah, it's yeah. really simple. It's like the moon has a force. You know, when it's a full moon, you can feel it and it affects the water. Same with when it's the opposite. So a waxing or a waning, depending what side of the, the moon cycle you're on, has an effect on plant growth. And it was just really about understanding that that effect, whether the, the moon is in alignment with Saturn or opposite the sun and just understanding those different forces. So really all that biodynamics is, there are practical methods such as compost making, uh, cover crop growing, you know, when to plant something, when to harvest a certain crop, whether it's a root vegetable or a fruit vegetable. And so it got really interesting. Biodynamics, it really opens the door up to many things that, you know, it's not just as simple as putting a seed in the ground. And yeah, so give me, let me get this straight. Like when I'm like, when anyone's like whipping down to Costco and we're getting ourselves like a tray, like a bag of lettuce, you know, the, with the gas in it, mm-hmm. like what are we getting? Wow, uh, yeah. Uh, I can't answer that question, to be honest with you, because there are obviously different companies do different things. But I guess um, what I believe um, current conventional agricultural systems are producing is is very low nutrient food, um, potentially risky food with the, the chemicals that they use instead of hand weeding or mechanized weeding or reduced weeding from no tillage they are utilising chemicals and synthetic fertilisers to produce what what they would call a food. But if you put that under certain tests, how many nutrients really are in that? And so that's, for me, I would question when you are buying something 
that's grown conventionally through the last 70 years of agricultural practices, uh, are you really getting what you think you're paying for? In my belief, I don't think so. That's why I went down the path of understanding soil biology, um, nutrient density, but getting the balance right in each plant and each crop to what it needs to thrive and to be a healthy plant rather than needing chemicals and fertilisers. I mean, this totally blows my mind because I think we've all, everyone's had that experience of like, you know, biting into particularly like a tomato. Yeah. It's grown hard and it's like what, it doesn't, it's red, it doesn't taste like a tomato, It it's powdery, it just <laughs> breaks down or like, you know, I've tasted your produce. It's amazing. It's actually nice. how I came to find out about you through a cooking class by I think I called Alex Klein, which is amazing. And right, yeah, the food good. is totally different. But what it, what is going on when you say chemicals? Yeah, we kind of just trust we trust big producers. Like what is on our food? Yeah, mates. This is a massive, really big uh, discussion to have. But keeping it really simple, what's going on in today's agricultural system is that they are farming in a way that is more of a lazy farmer's way. And and I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm just being honest from my experience that they're, they're relying on tractors and chemicals to do the work for them. And I can understand when you're trying to produce food on a large scale, you're going to need certain assistance. There's no doubt. But that's why the method that I took was let's go small. Let's make small acreage the farming practice. Let's be able to manage it by human, uh, let's say human efforts and using smart tools, hand tools, not dependent on limited resources such as oil. So we don't rely on a tractor. We use a shovel to make our beds or, you know, maybe if we do use a, a tool that requires some sort of oil, we'll, it won't be used much and it's a very small amount of oil per annum versus, let's say, a farmer who's using tractors to transplant their seedlings, to weed, to harvest. They use all those expensive tools. Um, they're also depleting. And a lot of practice, conventional practice is they'll grow, let's say, a spinach crop followed by a broccoli crop followed by a lettuce crop because one's a medium feeder, one's a heavy, and then one is a light. Then they'll put in synthetic fertilizers, till it over and start the same rotation again, which is depleting the same soil of the same nutrients. Now, that is lo- logically a, a – it's – it's the wrong way, in my opinion, to go because you're just relying on fertilisers then. That's where the chemicals and the fertilisers come in. Let, let, can we yeah. talk about, say, carrot? Like when we go off to unnamed supermarket to yeah. get our bag of carrots, yeah. what are we getting versus your carrot? Like how's your carrot come up? A, a commercial carrot would be potentially weeded through a herbicide, uh, a, a chemical obviously, um, and they'd be using a soil that potentially is either fertilised through synthetics, uh, whereas what I would feed the plant with, first of all, is the biology and the, the symbiosis that occurs with the carrot root and the biology that's in the soil, they feed each other. That carrot releases, exudes, exudates, which is food for that bacteria and fungi to eat, then to poop out, and it makes it bioavailable to then in return feed that plant. This is the magic behind growing a plant and utilising nature rather than a synthetic. So first of all, you're not needing to bring in chemicals or you know spend all this money on synthetics, but instead you're getting nature providing the plant with exactly what it needs when it needs without force feeding it, which is what the current conventional system does. They feed it through forcing it to eat. So it's like steroids. Exactly. You're pumping it in. You're saying, grow. 
And through that, it's not a natural process. It's like if you look at somebody who takes steroids at a gym, they're going to get really, really big. <laughs> but you take them off that for two months or six months and it starts to transform that person backwards. Yeah, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of sad stuff happens. It's, it's not great. Yeah. But I'm, like, I'm fascinated in your mind. Like, what is going on with us, some of us, like eating this stuff full time? Like, what is that doing to our health to be eating just bagged up, you know, Fake vegetables. Well, that's that's a really, really good question. It should be asked by everybody. And that was the question that I started when I went into organics. I asked, what is organic and is it real? And what, what are the benefits here? And really, just to keep it simple, organic means no chemicals used in the process. But I think it's still just a starting point. It's a great switch. If we could get all agriculture onto organic, fantastic. But there's a lot more to the picture, which is improving soil, not to till the soil, to bring to enhance the soil biology relationship with the plants rather than relying on even bringing in implements uh, too many natural minerals for example lime you can lime the soil to uh, balance out the ph but you shouldn't have to because everything you need is should be in that soil and this is the work of dr elaine ingham um, soil soil food web a microbiologist who's world recognized for the work she's done. And it's the work, a lot of the work that I've later in my life studied through the SFI Institute here in Lismore in Australia. Um, and that's where I got into the microscope and looking in the soil, looking at compost, the compost teas, and just observing when you implement those into the, onto the plants and into the soil, watching over months and years, the progression and the quality of soil enhance. And when you ask me about the the carrots before, that's what you're tasting. When you eat my carrot or my tomato, why is it so full of flavor like it used to be back in the old days? Because the soil is recovered, it's healed, and it's got a lot more activity biologically, which then supports the symbiosis that occurs in that plant relationship to getting its own food through exudates. I hear you that the organic is like full of goodness. I think for any of us who've you know, been to the odd farmer's market. We want to know, like, why is our, why, why do organics sort of look pockmarked and look like they've been in a street fight? That's, yeah, that, that's a really good point because it is like that sometimes, but not always. The, the truth is a really healthy plant will produce the genetics of that seed. And that could be a really perfect tomato or a really awkward shaped tomato or a crooked carrot. There's many features involved for, from the soil, um, could be, the, the soil for a carrot could be too compacted, so it causes that carrot to go crooked. Certain mineral deficiencies and um, over-mineraled soil can also form a carrot. Now, that's also part of not trying to control everything, such as in the conventional. We're using synthetic fertilizers to make that seed produce exactly the same produce or carrot in this case, or tomato. The other thing is the seeds used in conventional usually are hybridized seeds, which are grown for the purpose of the genetic characteristics of what that seed can produce. Now, it's not saying organic growers... Is that sort of like the Fuji apples we get? They're all just like super sweet and super perfect shape? Exactly. So they've, they've pretty much manipulated or let's say encouraged that species to keep growing because of its sweetness. Like in nature, corn pretty much got sweeter because of human intervention. We kept saving the seeds to the really sweet cobs. 
And then、mm. we kept replanting that. So naturally, that progression was to go sweeter because it learned that the way it was going to succeed, which is nature's number one philosophy, is how can we succeed? Is they slowly, slowly over time, the evolution of that seed gets sweeter and sweeter because it knows that's what's going to get us human beings to replant that. Yeah, wowzers. So we're now like all downing super sweet. Corn, Doritos,、totally. super fat. Here we are. Yeah, and that's why the consumer is, at the end of the day, responsible, whether they know it or not, and have the power to change quality of food. And this is what's so amazing. There's a group in America who are working on this, and that's the Bionutrient Crew,、um, Bionutrient.org, and Dan, who's leading that. They've come up with an invention that they've been working on, which is to scan food for its nutrient density. Now, when we have that tool. That little gadget device, like a smartphone size, we'll be able to go into a shop, scan it, and go, Oh, that carrot's not very good. Go to the next carrot, into a next shop. Oh, that carrot looks really good. It says what level of nutrient density is in there, and along with a lot of other things that、How、one would want to know. How do we get the scanner? Yeah, well, we've got to wait till it's completed. They've got the first generation, should be launched next year, which is really exciting for us farmers. But it's, it's still a while away before it's perfected and maybe perhaps put inside as an application of a phone. That's yeah,、wowzers. a lot of money is going to be invested into that. But it's, it's getting close, which is good news. But in the meantime, Dave, just to sort of like point us all in the right direction,、yeah. for those of us who want to do the right thing, you know, we don't necessarily have, we can't make shopping at Farmers Market our full time job. What can we do? Where can we shop? Well, What's the minimum thing to do? That's part of why I, I established the home delivery service, which was really all about catering for those who couldn't make it、um, or couldn't be at the farmers' markets on the weekends. So find a, a farm, a no till organic farm, or someone practicing chemical free farming who really cares about the soil and really cares about good quality, nutrient dense nutri-、uh, pr- produce rather than it looking perfect, perhaps just focusing on the qualities. And get them to either home deliver or be a part of their CSA, which is the biggest movement in America and Canada and quite successful too, is the CSA system, which is community supports agriculture.、Um, that can be said in a few different ways, but essentially it's the community getting behind the farmers, making sure they have a membership and they get their weekly box or fortnightly box. And that's an automatic process. So the farmer can work on growing and, and specializing in quality rather than running the business every week, which is, which is what I do in the back end. I'm always every week, I've offered all the options to the customers, which puts a burden on my time because then I'm managing that weekly. Whereas if you do a CSA system、uh, there with a membership, the farmer doesn't have to manage the business anymore. They do that at the start of the season, and all they have to focus on is quality, growing quality crops and having it delivered. Or... Organised so that the customer can come pick it up from the farm. Dave, thank you so much for、um, taking the time to enlighten us about the world of agriculture、um, on the alternative truth. And for everyone listening out there, I encourage you to check out Raw Eatables and、um, sign on to your local CSA. Thank you. Thank you. What struck me about Dave's perspective is the intimacy with which he understood the land and cycles of life. His wisdom was born of the backbreaking first hand experience of building soil that will support food production for generations. Both Chris and Dave brushed up against the moral virtue and arguably cultural benefit of eating organic or biodynamic produce. On this, Chris believed that it was genuinely a nice thing to do, but that there really is no measurable health benefit in consuming organic. Dave took a different, more holistic, and longitudinal view. 
pointing to the cost to the planet and lack of sustainability that comes with present-day approaches. In his view, if we don't eat organic and biodynamic, we're poisoning our collective tomorrow. Now, it's been said that food is the new internet, and perhaps there is a real truth to that. Why, how and what we eat says so very much about what we value as individuals and as a society. Thank you once again for joining us on The Alternative Truth and join me in the rest of the series where we dive into Are Contraceptives Dangerous to Women's Health? Self-Improvement versus Self-Harm? Where's the Plastic Surgery Line? Energy Medicine? And is the mainstreaming of porn damaging behaviour? Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Grinberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au. Hi, I'm Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast, or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Podcast One.